Uh, good morning. My name is Tarek George. Um, I am one of the pastoral staff here, and it is a privilege to welcome you. If you are just joining us, welcome. We are in a sermon series on 2 Corinthians, and we are now in chapter 5, which Hannah is going to read for us. So, Hannah, please. Our reading today is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Hannah. morning. Well, I uh, remember quite vividly the first night I ever spent in a tent. I was in my second year of university and a bunch of my Canadian friends decided to take me along for my first camping experience. I had little to no idea what I was doing, but I packed a number of things that I was told to bring. I didn't own a tent, but they offered to let me share with two other guys in the group. Great, I thought. This is going to be lots of fun. It wasn't. <laughs> we hiked several kilometers into the bush through mud and weeds, carrying a whole ton of equipment that I could scarcely have believed was even necessary. <laughs> it was exhausting. Camping sure seems like a lot of effort, I said to my friend. We haven't started camping yet, he replied. <laughs> it must have been half an hour later when we finally arrived at the campsite, and I don't know what I was expecting, but <laughs> we got there, and it started raining. And not just one or two drops, like it was pouring, like torrential rain. I don't know how we didn't see that coming. We spent the next hour or so scrambling, trying to put up tarp and secure our tents, one of which we realized happened to be torn in one corner. My tent. <laughs> it was all we had with us, and the guys deemed that it was still usable. And so that night, we bundled up as best as we could and huddled together for warmth. I have to tell you, there are a few nights in my life that I can remember being so cold, so wet, and so miserable. I spent most of the night watching this little tear in the corner of our tent just get bigger and bigger by the hour. Our tent was literally coming apart as we slept. <laughs> and in that little busted-up tent, being spooned by two other guys in our group, I remember thinking fondly of my warm bed at home. <laughs> You see, I realized that I had this romanticized idea of what, what camping was going to be like. I thought about sleeping under the stars, swimming in a lake, and enjoying s'mores around a campfire. I thought about cooking outdoors, fishing, and quality time with some close friends. 
It was supposed to be a great weekend. But you see, all it took was a busted up tent to ruin that illusion. I remember my buddy staring beside me and he seemed to know instinctively what I was thinking. He laughed. Are you ready to go home yet? He asked, somewhat sarcastically. You know, curiously, I think this is the same question that we find the Apostle Paul asking us this very morning. In our passage today, he likens life right now and our experience of the world to be almost like living in a tent. But it's a busted up tent. It's beginning to show signs of wear and damage and very soon it's going to give out entirely. But there's hope for the believer because this is not our final resting place. We are anticipating a better shelter than that. You see, we are, all of us, waiting to go home. And Paul in this text tells us how we are to wait. He invites us to prepare for eternity by asking and answering two important questions. First, what should we anticipate? And second, what should be our aim? What should we anticipate and what should be our aim? Well, over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the gospel's implications for both everyday life in the present, but most especially, life in eternity that is to come. And Paul here paints a picture of what the believer ought to anticipate. What kind of future does the gospel offer a person? He begins in verse 1 by saying, for we know, we know, you know, I know, we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, eternal in the heavens. Now, it's no coincidence, I think, that Paul uses this imagery of a tent. If you didn't know, aside from being a minister, Paul was actually a tent maker by trade. Making tents was one of the ways that he made a living and financed his ministry. And interestingly enough, Acts 18 actually tells us that Paul busies himself making tents all the while as he stays in Corinth, the very city where this church resides. And it's quite likely, I think, that the people of this church actually saw Paul at work in the marketplace making tents. He's working with his hands and making tents for people, and he's also simultaneously telling them about the good news of the gospel. Think about that for a moment. Paul is making Corinthian disciples at the same time as he's making Corinthian tents. And as he's going along, I think it dawns on him one day that the two aren't actually all that different. Our earthly bodies, just like these tents, are just as temporary, vulnerable, and frail. They're just adequate enough for a particular task, but they won't last much longer than that. You can almost imagine the apostle laying down his tools as he considers this. He says, one day, one day, these earthly bodies that we inhabit will be destroyed. Now, the Greek word he used here is kataluo, which literally means that our bodies will be torn down or dismantled, just like a tent. This is the destiny of every human body. Now, whether you're a Christian or skeptic, I think we can all agree on this point. Our bodies are finite. Uh, the best scientific research agrees that we have tools and knowledge to prolong life and moderate the effects of aging, but we cannot escape destruction, this kataluo that Paul is talking about. Our bodies, as Paul says, are in slow decline. We know this. It's for this reason, I think, that we have entire industries built around fighting it. In fact, in 2020, it was estimated that the global anti-aging market was worth about $58.5 billion. And it's one of the fastest growing markets worldwide. That should tell us something. 
We care about our bodies. You and I can't live with a ragged tent. Let's face it, we want to look younger, live longer, and enjoy fuller lives. Everyone cares about the latest fitness hack, fad, diet, or miracle supplement. And yet we all know instinctively that it won't last. You see, I think Paul is absolutely right. He's saying we all groan the condition, the current condition of our lives and our bodies, and we long for something better, maybe even something eternal. And this is Paul's point. Our bodies will perish, and so will everything we use them for. Your health will diminish despite all your best efforts. Your wealth and possessions will ultimately go to someone else. Your accolades and your achievements will they'll almost certainly be forgotten. And even your loved ones, even they, they too will pass in their own time. Everything on earth that you earn, build, and cherish for yourself will ultimately expire the same way you do. And you don't have to be religious to see that. There's a sober reality to life in this tent. Paul says in verse 4 that it's burdensome. It makes him groan. Tell me honestly that you don't feel that way this morning. Don't you groan? I know some of you who are desperately needing some encouragement this morning. Others of you just need one good night's sleep. All of us, I think, are tired of the pandemic. You see, I think you and I long for something better, and Paul gives us a picture of what that is. He contrasts our present reality with what the gospel promises. Look with me at verses 1 to 4. Paul begins comparing his present life with the one that is to come. He says, we currently have a tent, but one day we will have a building. Right now we're being held together like fabric, sticks, and rope, but one day we will be joined together like brick and stone. Right now we have an earthly home, but soon we will have a heavenly one. Right now we taste death, but very soon it will be swallowed up by life. Right now we are mortal, but very soon we will be eternal. Right now our bodies face destruction, decay, frailty, sadness, sickness, but very soon they will be imperishable. I need to ask you, do you understand what is being offered to you in the gospel? Even if you don't believe in Jesus, you'd be a fool to want for less. You have this body, these paltry clothes that you think the world of right now, and Paul asks, wouldn't you rather have robes instead? Don't you want to be further clothed? Do you see what he's saying? In every respect, the gospel offers us something better than what we currently have. We are exchanging the frail and the perishable for the eternal and the imperishable. Paul is envisioning a future where there will be no suffering, no sickness, no oppression, and no death, where there's joy and laughter and peace like you and I can't even imagine. Does that sound too good to be true? I need to tell you that it is. It is, and it should radically change the way we see the world. We are to anticipate these things with groaning and longing, Paul says. And it's worth mentioning, I think, that Paul uses this word groaning in a positive sense, not negative. We don't just groan because life, earthly life is hard. We groan because our appetites have been wet for something that this world cannot offer us. In fact, elsewhere in Romans 8, Paul actually uses this word groaning. He says, for we know we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves, we're groaning also as we await the redemption of our bodies. What a vivid picture. 
Paul says we're all groaning right now as if we were in labor. That makes me so uncomfortable. Some of you may know that my wife and I actually had our child fairly recently. I think it was the most terrifying experience of my entire life. We groaned the pain of childbirth. It was tiring and it was tough. In fact, I think I was groaning so much in the delivery room, I actually fainted. Yeah, no joke. <laughs> My wife was in the middle of a contraction when I was about to receive an epidural, and she turned to the nurse and she said, would you take care of my husband? <laughs> He's going through a lot. <laughs> and I was so embarrassed. <laughs> they put me outside with some juice, and I, I continued groaning out there for a while. But you see, we groaned not just because that experience was hard, but because we were longing to hold our little boy. My wife's tent was getting bruised and banged up, but it was worth it because we were anticipating something glorious. And Paul is saying, too, the gospel is worth it. It is so much more glorious. Anticipate this future with groaning and longing. Listen, whatever suffering or difficulty you are facing right now in the body, in your present life, God is preparing for you a beautiful eternity if you have trusted in Christ Jesus. Christian, your tent will endure a broken world just like everybody else and will not be unscathed. God has not promised you that safety. You will face suffering and heartache and disappointment, maybe even like the Apostle Paul. Your tent will be torn and tarnished muddied and marred, discredited and damaged. And sometimes in your darkest hours, it may even feel like your tent is coming apart at the seams. But you hold fast. You hold fast. Because unlike the rest of the world, your striving and your sufferings will not be in vain because you have been granted a better shelter to go to afterwards. Paul, writing to the same church in 1 Corinthians, says this, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are a people of all most to be pitied. Let that sink into your soul. There is life beyond the tent, and Paul wants you to anticipate it. You are to groan over your earthly tent and long for your heavenly dwelling. And this is Paul's first point. Secondly, Paul also here asks us to consider what should be our aim. You see, it's not enough to just anticipate something or see it from a distance. Paul has shown you what's ahead, and now he wants to tell you how to get there. He says in verse 6 that on the basis of this glorious future laid up for us, we are always to be of good courage. He actually repeats it twice, twice. He's basically saying, isn't it encouraging to know that God is in control and that your eternal destiny is secured? <laughs> I mean, really, really. If you knew that next week you were about to inherit a multi-million dollar mansion in Forest Hill, would you care that much if you lost your job? Probably not. Probably not. And so too, if the God of the universe has prepared a home for you eternally in heaven, what could this passing world possibly throw at you that could shake your confidence? There's nothing, nothing. We are always to be of good courage, Paul says. Well, why? What do we need courage for? And that is a great question, to which Paul answers, because there's work still to be done here. He says, we are right now away from the Lord and at home in the body. That will change. We know this. But for now, we walk by faith and not by sight. Verse 7, he's saying, you know the destination. Now you must walk the distance. 
And so that you don't lose your way or fall short, here is to be your compass. Verse nine, whether we are home or away, we make it our aim to please him. This is how you get there. As you walk your way home into eternity, make it your goal to please God. This is your primary focus, not your own pleasure, not that of your spouse or your parents or your country or your workplace. You are to be wholly devoted to pleasing God because your life now has a radically new trajectory. Christian, your home is not here. You are to be seeking a kingdom that is imperishable. You are to be groaning and longing for the kingdom of Jesus and let nothing move you from this calling. Your life here now is not about your own pleasure. In fact, if you let yourself be seduced by perishable worldly things, you will inevitably lose sight of this grand vision that God has for you. You will find yourself at odds with God building your own kingdom and you will sacrifice the offer of an imperishable building to go patch up a broken tent. Don't do that. Don't do that. That is not what God has called you to do. Because the prevailing belief of our culture is that there's nothing outside the tent. And because there's nothing outside the tent, you ought to spend your life in the pursuit of the best camping experience ever because your pleasure is all you have to live for. I fear that sometimes we get swept up in this, even as believers. I know I do, regularly. And Paul says, no, there's more to life than the tent. There's something more important for you to serve than your pleasure. Make it your aim to please God. Men and women, open your eyes to this spiritual reality. We are living in one of the hottest real estate markets in the world, but don't let that fool you. The uncomfortable truth of this passage is that the great and wonderful Toronto we inhabit is really just the glorified tent city. It is filled with people pursuing their own pleasure. People who have wealth, status, beautiful condos, and prestigious jobs, but who are spiritually broke and homeless. Some of us have the premium North Face VE 52 tent, and others of us just got stuck with the no-name value tent. But it really doesn't matter in the end, does it? Even if you have every kind bell and whistle imaginable, you're still just a tent. You follow me. Grace Toronto, I think underneath all the luxury and success of our city lies a problem. We are society far too enamored with fabric, sticks, and rope. Paul says, desire more than this life, and aim for it, aim for it. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, well, it's possible that you find all this talk about your next life kind of frustrating. I know some of you who have felt burned by Christians who only seem to care about salvation, people's souls, and eternity. You've heard a gospel that cares little about the state of the world and is only concerned with escaping this life and going to heaven. The phrase has been tossed around a lot that the Christian is so heavenly minded that they are seldom of any earthly good. And I think that's a fair criticism, I do. I think there are times in the history of the church where we have cared far too much about the joys of heaven and have cared far too little about the pains of earth. There are times where we've neglected to seek justice, to show mercy, and to stand up for what's right. Well-intentioned Christians have argued, I think, that if our earthly tents are going to be destroyed, well, what does it matter anyway? 
Why should we care about poverty or politics or justice or even the environment? I think Paul would be growling and growling and rolling in his grave if he heard you say that. I want you to see from this text that that is not at all what the apostle has in mind. In fact, the opposite is true. If you really understand your Savior's love for the world and its people, how could you not want to bless it with all of your being? This is Paul's point. Listen, don't misunderstand what this text is saying. Being heavenly minded shouldn't be at odds with doing earthly good. In fact, it was C.S. Lewis who challenged that in his book, Mere Christianity. He said this, if you read history, if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. This is Paul's point. If we truly aim to please God, we should care more, not less about the state of the world. We should want to do immeasurable good. We should. We should want to make the most of our time here in the body. Because here's the kicker. We will actually be judged for how we use that time. Paul concludes in verse 10 with these words. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Paul says that there's a judgment seat that every person must stand before. Scholars think that what Paul is doing is alluding to a structure that stood in the very center of Corinth, the very heart of the city. It was a magnificent raised platform where governors would sit and pronounce judgment and decrees. It was a judgment seat. And the Corinthians actually watched as Paul stood on trial there for the work of the gospel. You can read about it in Acts 18. And Paul is saying, do you remember that? Do you remember that? That is the future of every person who has ever lived. One day you will stand on trial, just like I did, except it will not be before some earthly governor, but it will be before Jesus Christ. He sits upon the only judgment seat that matters, and he knows everything you've ever done. Everything. You see, there's a promise here of eternal life in our passage, but there's also a judgment. God is looking to see how you spend time in your earthly tent. Did you use your tent for holiness, righteousness, and good? Or did you use it for selfishness, wickedness, and evil? Did you, as Paul writes in verse 7, walk by faith and not by sight? If you're here and you're not a Christian, I need to tell you that this may be the most important decision that you may ever make in your life. You may have done some good in your life, but the Bible says that you've done a great deal of evil too, and so have I. And ultimately, no amount of good deeds will outweigh the sin that affects each of our lives. Unless you come to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, hear me clearly, you cannot please God. It is as the author of Hebrews writes, without faith it is impossible to please him. I would implore you to consider that very carefully because everything I've been describing this morning about a heavenly eternal dwelling can come to you by no other way. I pray that you would think about that. For the Christian here, you should find deep encouragement in this passage, but you should also be warned God is looking for good works, and you will not inherit your eternal dwelling without them. They are necessary. I think there are many of us in the church who have shrunk the gospel down to being only about grace 
It is that, certainly, but it is so much more. Most of us, I think, walk around with the sense that it's what I believe that matters, never mind that I'm sleeping with my boyfriend or dating a non-Christian or watching porn. Who cares how I spend my money or how I treat my spouse or if I slander my brother? Listen to me very carefully. A day is coming when God will call you to account for every careless word you have said, every sinful act you have done, and every wicked thought you have entertained. That sounds harsh, but you need to hear it from this text. Paul says we walk by faith, yes, but in the same breath he can say you will receive what is due according to your deeds. Paul is not saying that you were saved by works. That would be nonsense. You were saved by grace alone, by faith alone. But as the Bible teaches, your works will evidence whether your faith is true or not. And please know these are not my words. These are not. Jesus himself says to his followers in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does, who does the will of my Father. Let me tell you what this means in context. Here's what this means. Christian, you cannot please God if you have no interest in doing what he says. The Jesus who is your savior is also the Jesus who is your judge. You cannot have one without the other. If the Jesus you believe in offers you salvation and eternal life and asks for nothing in return, may I suggest that you've been sold a false gospel. You would be remiss to think that Christ would demand your worship, but not demand your works. You cannot put him on the throne of your life, but remove him from the judgment seat. If he is your king, he must also be your judge. Which means this, Christian. When you appear before the judgment seat of Christ, he will not ask you, did you believe and trust in me for salvation? Rather, he will tell you, show me that you believed and trusted in me for salvation. Your works and what you do in this earthly tent matters. And listen, this is not meant to frighten you, but you should know that God takes very seriously what you do in your earthly tent. Your obedience really matters. Paul would say to you from this passage, be diligent, but you should also hear him say to you from this text, be of good courage. Because, he says in verse five, because he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit. And this is a marvelous assurance because my friends, the Spirit's aim is to please God. And when you walk humbly by faith, it is the Spirit who will enable you to do the very same thing. It is the Spirit's delight that you should do good works that please God and he will help you to that effect. Trust him, obey him, do that. Because here's the beauty of the gospel. Men and women, there's a house made for us without hands and God has built it and kept it for you. He has. Paul says in verse five, the spirit is our guarantee. It literally means that God's spirit is a deposit or a down payment for our eternal home. God gave you that because of Christ Jesus. And you are right now waiting to inherit a home that you are too broke to afford. Gospel says that this was your spiritual condition. You were a sinner going your own way and a subject of God's wrath. 
You had no assets and no earnings, and your debt was through the roof. You shouldn't qualify for anything but a dirty tent on the Gardner Expressway. But Christ Jesus, but Christ Jesus, out of his abundant mercy, saw your ragged tent and left his eternal home for you. The Gospel of John says that the Son of God pitched his tent among us because he was determined to save us from the sin and suffering of a broken world. There was no way for you to live with God eternally. You had nothing. And so this Son of God signed his name under yours in blood. He said, I will pay your mortgage. And he did. On the night before his crucifixion, he said this to his followers. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. My friends, this tremendous promise from our Lord is what drove him to the cross. Because at the cross, Jesus allowed his earthly tent to be destroyed, kataluo. He received what was due for what you had done in the body. Do you see? The eternal judge stood in your place before the judgment seat so that sinners like you and me might inherit an eternal home. Tell me, is that not worthy of your praise? Does that not deserve your allegiance and your good works? What could you anticipate that could be better than that? What could you aim for with your life that could be more glorious? Well, some application. What can we say from this text? What is Paul calling us to do? I think he asks us to do two things here. First, to anticipate the future. And second, to attend to the present. Anticipate the future. This morning we've heard Paul describe some incredible rewards and also some dire consequences. Paul's greatest desire, his utmost delight, he says here, is to be united with the risen Jesus. In fact, Paul is so anchored in this hope that he can say in verse 8, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. It's worth asking yourself, am I able to say that confidently? Perhaps it may reveal something about our affections and where we have laid our hope. Do you groan and long to be with the Lord more than you long for the things of this world, more than a house, more than a partner? a dream job, even a family. Listen, acquire these things as the Lord calls you, but treasure Christ above them all. Because men and women, the tent will only give you so much, so seek an imperishable dwelling with Christ. Second, attend to your present. This text tells us to be diligent and not presumptuous. Paul asks us to search ourselves and determine if we really are walking by faith are we behaving in a manner consistent with the faith that we profess? I think some of us may need to spend some time confessing our sins to God and taking our steps to correct our offenses. I'd ask you to do that sincerely. Eternity is at stake. That God is gracious. And he's waiting for you and your confession. Others of you here may feel a fresh desire to make it your aim to please God. That's wonderful. And you're probably sitting here asking, well, what should I do? I'm not going to tell you, because Paul doesn't tell you. 
Pleasing God is not about accomplishing some tasks or checking off a box. If it were, Paul would have listed a whole host of things. He doesn't. Rather, he's saying that your goal should be to live all of life in a way that makes God's approval and God's delight your highest priority because that's what pleases him. That might sound overly simplistic. If you don't believe me, try this. Go to someone who loves you very much and out of the blue, out of the blue, ask them this question. What can I do that would really please you? What would make you happy? Chances are that you will not receive a list from that person, but you will receive a smile. Because in simply asking that question, you have already entered into that person's great pleasure. Men and women, because of what Christ has done, you have access to the pleasures of God. You have found a person who loves you more than any earthly friend or relative. So now you ask the Spirit. You ask the Spirit, Lord, what can I do today that would really and truly please you? Show me through your word if there are ways that I have displeased you. And then you, make it your aim to obey him all the days that he should grant you to live in this earthly tent. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this tent that you have given to us. It is ragged and it is tearing, but it gives us a hope and anticipation for the future. We pray that you would help us to lay hold of the promises that you have for us by your spirit, that we would be people who do good works and people who love you with all of our lives. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we have a second now for Q&A. If you have some questions, you can text that in. Let's see. I am kind of the opposite of heavenly-minded. I have faith in Jesus and believe in him and feel his presence. When it comes to believing in an afterlife, I hit a wall of doubt. Do you have any suggestions around this? That's a good question. Um, I think Paul tells you from this passage to know. He repeats that several times. He says, we know, we know, we know. Spend time in his word. Find ways to know that and to hear that good news, whether that's from the Lord directly in his word or from your community or small group. I think there are also ways in which we live in the world right now that can skew our passions and our anticipation for the next. I think if you have trouble believing in an afterlife, it could be that, it could be that you find a lot of your hope here. Spend time with some broken people. You heard a lot about hope at Christmas and some ways that we can serve and help our city. I think spending time with the brokenness of the world will actually give you longing and an appetite and a hunger for something much better than this. I hope that's helpful. Ultimately, the Spirit gives us this assurance and you should ask the Spirit to give you that assurance also. Uh, This is a long question. (laughs) 
He stated in the sermon that God will make us account for everything we say and do, which is very high standard. So notwithstanding our belief and efforts of obedience while here on earth, it sounds like there's a very little chance of getting into heaven and cannot be assured of entrance therein. So what is the point? Dan, I think you should go right to the table, actually. <laughs> I think you should go right to the table. This, look, this is the point of the gospel. It is, it is gracious. None of us deserve this eternal home. And if you hear anything from this passage, you should hear that there is a judgment. We ought to take it seriously. But Christ has paid for your sin. Christ does not encourage you to be presumptuous. He says, you must do the will of my Father. Not everyone who comes to me um, saying, Lord, Lord, will I acknowledge. But you do have a great assurance here if you are sincere and wholehearted and you cling to Jesus and you wholeheartedly wish to obey him. It is a very high standard. And that's why we have such a great belief that Jesus has bridged that on our behalf. And that is the gospel. And I hope you hear that from this text. And maybe we'll go to 